Beloved, if you are visiting with us this morning on behalf of our church family, it's my great privilege to welcome you and extend a special welcome to those of you worshiping with us through the live stream. This is a sad day. We're going to finish 1 Thessalonians. Sniff, sniff. Just uh, because of scheduling and programming reasons, this will be my last sermon. I won't quite finish the book. Maybe at some point we'll come back to the uh, exhortation to pray at the end. But our text this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15. There's an outline provided in the the bulletin. No doubt it will help you follow me. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. When a new coach assumes leadership, over a professional sports team. You'll sometimes hear the pundits say something like this. That coach needs to change the culture of the locker room. Translated, the team is known for relational strife and discord. There weren't healthy relationships among the players. When the Lord Jesus Christ forms a community of people called the church, he changes the culture of that people. And you can really tell. Thessalonians, I believe, embraces more so than any other church, a culture of transformation under the glorious presence of Jesus. Everything Jesus touches gets better. And it was so true in Thessalonica. Quick review of what we've seen. This church had an Uh, irresistible impulse to speak about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. This church had a passionate delight to obey God's law. Chapter 4, verse 1, how you learn to walk and please God just as you're doing. This church experienced an overflow of the love of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 9, you're taught by God to love one another just as you're doing. And we saw last week in chapter 5, verse 11, where Paul says, encourage one another just as you're doing. So it raises what question? How can you tell there is a culture of encouragement? What does it look like when believers are being transformed by the presence of Jesus and his love? How is that manifested? That's the question Paul's answering beginning in verse 12. 
you can tell the culture changes. And I want to look at that under two major headings. First of all, when the Lord Jesus Christ changes the culture of a human community, those who have been changed respect and esteem their leaders. Paul's a church planter wherever he goes. He proclaims the gospel. He teaches the word of God. Among other things, he has a delight to show followers of Jesus what it looks like to thrive under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before he leaves, he ensures that elders are appointed to govern the church. It's possible that because this was a new church and the leaders were new, it's possible that the church members would be tempted to disrespect them, be jealous of them, expect these leaders to do all the ministry, expect these leaders to, to rule flawlessly, and it's possible the church members resisted some of the admonishing that needed to take place. So look at verse 12, given that possibility. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Do you see the two obligations owed your leaders? It's the two key verbs in the sentence. The first obligation is to respect them for the nature of their office. He says they are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That means Jesus put the leaders in place to shepherd his precious flock in his stead. I want you to think about it this way. You become a follower of Jesus and you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And eventually you begin to wonder how does the Lord Jesus Christ desire to exercise that lordship in my life for my good and for his glory? How does Jesus exercise his lordship in your life? Any number of ways, not least, by the power of the Holy Spirit, using the word of God and prayer and through the shepherding ministry of the elders. What a gift. God giving you men who have knowledge, who have wisdom, life experience, the heart of a shepherd, knowledge of the Word of God, as vessels of Jesus tending to your welfare. And among the many functions that elders serve, one of them is, according to Paul in these verses, is what? They admonish you. Literally, the word means to put into mind. The elders are taking the truth of God's word and where you are veering off course to your own danger and detriment, your elders are pleased to bring the word of God to bear in your thinking as a corrective. Now, to receive admonishment, what do you have to believe? You've got to believe it's good for you. And it's bad to be in error. You don't have to believe in God as a parent to know this. Parents, we intuitively know we want to teach our kids what is good for them. They don't know. We do. It's the same idea. So he says leaders are owed respect for the nature of their office, and secondly, 
esteem for the quality of their labors. You may not know, I've served as an interim pastor now at a number of different churches for the last six years, and they're all Presbyterian, so obviously I have worked intimately with the elders of these churches. It, it really has been an enormous privilege for me. And for eight months, I've worked with your elders. I'd like you to stand, if you would, if you're an elder in this church, even emeritus. Even emeritus. Would you just stand, if you have served the Lord or are currently serving the Lord as an elder in this church? So the rest of them are away on vacation, otherwise disposed. You may be seated. I have watched these brothers work countless hours in meetings, seeking out individuals, seeking out staff, hearing from a consultant how they've failed in their leadership, taking that seriously, hosting town hall meetings, processing those, and taking seriously the areas in which they can better deliver ministry to you. And we're working on that right now. I have found these brothers worthy of my esteem. All of this because of their love for you. And isn't it wonderful that when esteem is earned versus demanded, the fruit of that is you can't help but love people who shepherd you well. Continue to pray for your elders. That, that's the first piece. The second piece is bigger. The culture of a human community when Jesus touches it is transformed and you can see it. How is a culture of one anothering manifested? That's the question we're answering. And now I just want to show you how Paul gives you four markers that are actually gospel graces that are revealed when Jesus transforms the culture of a people. First peace, verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. Why does Paul need to tell them, and by extension, you and me, to be at peace with one another? Don't forget the context. This church is being persecuted. There are human beings at war with them because they identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the last thing they need is to be at war with each other. You know, if you're in a foxhole with somebody and the enemy's bullets are flying over your head, it really doesn't matter so much whether they voted Republican, Democrat, or Independent. You just want to know that they have your back, right? We're on the same team. In fact, Paul says we're in the one body of Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 25, the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, they all do. If one member is honored, all rejoice with them. And yet, what's the reality, beloved? We experience relational strife. Relationships are hard. 
they're messy, they're costly. And to do relationship well, it can sometimes feel inefficient. And I would propose that we often have strife in relationships because we fail to apply biblical principles that make relationships work. So what a timely message for Trinity. Some of you, not all, but some of you are suffering relational discord and strife and heartburn. And it has to do with where we are in our history as a church. Some of our brothers and sisters will be leaving for another wonderful church in town, other churches. Others of you are staying. This dynamic has created, not for all, but for some, certain levels of frustration, discord, lack of peace, at least in one's own heart. If that is you, know that your leaders will listen, seek them out. If you need counsel, you want someone to bear that burden with you, please don't hesitate to do that. And let me invite you to apply the principles I'm going to show here momentarily to your personal situation and see if they help you come to a greater sense of peace given where Trinity is and where she's going. First principle, our relationships reflect the unity of the Godhead. So the ultimate and most important reason for us to be at peace with each other is that when God looks down on our relationships, he is jealous to see manifested the unity that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A perfect peace and unity and love. God wants that mirrored in our relationships on earth. That is the best reason to do it. Second principle, we are all broken from relationships in our lives in some way. You've been sinned against, and because you were born a fallen creature, you've developed sinful patterns of relating to other people. Here's one template to use. Do you crave most in relationships? Do you crave approval, being in control, or being right? Now, all of us in the room crave in all likelihood, one of those things as a sinful pattern of relating to other people. If that isn't checked, if that isn't mortified, that thing you crave stands in peril against the health of the relationship. We've got to go to work against that individually. Uh, third principle, relationships work best on humility. Years ago, someone gave me a used lawnmower. It turned out to be one of those lawnmowers that what you put in the, in the uh, gas tank is a mixture of oil and gas. Now, don't ask me why anybody ever invented that. All the other lawnmowers I've had just need gas. So what's up with that? Somebody tell me later. I didn't have the oil. I didn't know where to get the oil. I didn't have an extra gas can. So I was so tempted, so tempted just to put gas in. I was so tempted. The grass needs cutting. This is the only lawnmower I... If I had... I would have ruined the motor. In the same way, relationships only work on a mixture of love, obviously, and humility, not so obviously. Love and humility. Never try relationship without humility. Your pride will kill the relationship. 
So the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. The verb clothe referred in the ancient world to a servant tying an apron around their waist. That tells you that humility is fundamentally an outward-looking focus, eyes on others, wondering how can I serve them? What do I owe them? Imagine a body of people at church where everyone is thinking the same way. You come to an assembly, you go to a small group, you have a dinner party, whatever it is, and everyone prior to it has girded their loins with an apron that's got them looking at the needs of others first and foremost. How can I serve you? How can I serve you? Imagine a community where everyone is asking that question. So we... When Jesus Christ's grace is poured out in a community, we fundamentally see ourselves as debtors. I owe you service. Paul, doesn't Paul say that in Romans 13? Owe nothing to anyone but love. So how can you tell you really believe that? Here's one way. How do you respond to someone when you're not getting what you want in the relationship? When you're not getting what you want, how do you respond? Do you continue serving because you are fundamentally a debtor? Last principle. We're not always aware of the impact we have on other people. So, beloved, how do people experience you? Do you know when you're most dangerous in a relationship? I found in my experience that when people in churches, when people are absolutely certain they're right, and they're convinced their cause is righteous, they need to slow down and get out the ruler, the golden ruler. <laughs> Jesus said, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. You want to be treated with compassion, patience, understanding, kindness. You want people to listen to you. You want people to bear with you. Do the same in your relationships. And I'm, I'm, as I leave this point, I want to state something that isn't always intuitively obvious to us, and that is this. We're talking about peace. Peace is a gospel grace that makes a healthy church community, and it would be this point. You're ultimately never going to be at peace with human beings until you're at peace with God. Because until you're at peace with God, you're going to try to get from people ultimately what only God can give you. We are at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. To know and to live in the humble, gentle, gracious, self-sacrificial heart of Jesus. To know that I have peace with God because Jesus put the enmity between me and God away in his body on the cross. To know that peace, okay, I can be far less demanding, petty, picky, prickly in my relationships. So think about that. Until you're at peace with God, it's going to be very challenging to be at peace with other people. Second grace that's manifested is provision. So when God gives you what is necessary, what does he do? He meets your needs. He tailors his care for you to what you need. And Paul is saying we have the opportunity in the church to mimic 
the kind, generous, gracious provision of God that is always tailored to our needs. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. I'm going to call this individualized one anothering. And Paul gives you a couple of case studies. Hey, what's this? <laughs> this is individualized one anothering. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you see the three case studies? He assumes that typically in a church, you're going to have people in different places emotionally and where they are in their lives. Here's the first case study, the idol. They're neglecting their duty. It's probably the people in Thessalonica who are tempted to quit work, leech off of others because they expect Jesus to come tomorrow. What do they need? They need admonishing. They need someone to come alongside them and say, look, there's a much better way to live. Let me help you find the path that pleases God, is good for you and for your family and for your brothers and sisters. Admonish the idol. Case study two, the faint-hearted. You know that word faint-hearted means little soul. I relate to these people. I, I can get faint-hearted. Sometimes my heart isn't full of confidence. It's not full of the spirit of resurrection. It's not full of all the benefits I have in Jesus Christ. I can feel little sold. What do the faint-hearted need? Admonishing? No. They need tender care. They need consolation. They need comfort. He says, I want you to encourage them. In Thessalonica, it could be people who are missing their loved ones who've died, people who are fearing the persecution, people who are anxious about the future, people who are dealing with failure or criticism. The faint-hearted need encouragement. And then the third case study is the weak. What do they need? The weak don't need admonishing. They don't need encouragement. They need help. This is a beautiful word in the original language. To help someone literally is to stand in front of them. So what's the picture? Husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, members of different ministry teams and small groups, when your brother or sister is being tempted to fall on their face through sexual temptation, greed, fear, wrong doctrine, whatever it is, the weak are falling, the strong are there to help to catch them. Oh, we could say so much more about that. But do you see what value marks a healthy church community? You have to be willing to say you're weak. So you may not be a follower of Jesus and you're with us today. We are so glad. We don't want you to get the wrong impression. We are not strong people. We believe we don't actually have anything apart from what God gives us. We're not the put-together, happy, snappy, intelligent. We, we are nothing apart from Christ. We want you to know that. We're weak. We need Jesus every moment of every day, as you sang earlier. Third grace that's manifested when Jesus changes the culture of a people. Patience. Verse 14, be patient with them all. Why do you need patience? Because we're all really slow to change. Did you notice that when you got married? Your spouse is still struggling with the same things they've struggled with for a long time. 
Your kids are, are going to struggle with the same things. Your friends tend to struggle with the same things. We need patience. We're slow to change. And we forget how patient God is with us. When was the last time you said to your heart, look at how magnificently long-suffering God is with you, heart? When was the last time we did that? We tend to forget how patient God is with us. And sadly, we're often the last person to see our blind spots. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 4, before you go take the speck out of someone else's eye, take the log out of your own eye. So do you realize oftentimes your impatience with other people is born out of a sense of superiority and what is the reality, beloved, if I'm doing anything in the Christian life a little better than you, what's the reality? It is only the grace of God given to me, or I would be worse than you. It is only the grace of God. It is only the constraining mercy of God. So let me teach you what I'll just call the perpetual patience prayer. The I know, we preachers are always coming up with these stupid phrases. The perpetual patience prayer. Lord, don't let my sin ruin this relationship. You want a healthy marriage? Get up tomorrow morning and say, Lord Jesus, I am the greatest threat to the welfare of my marriage. Don't let my sin, my pettiness, my pride, my demandingness, my critical spirit, Please, by the power of your spirit, don't let my sin hurt this relationship. That will produce an enormous amount of humility and patience and peace. Finally, protection. What, what are we saying? The culture, the relational culture of anything Jesus touches changes and you can tell. And here, Paul is putting teeth to what a culture of one anothering looks like tangibly. The last one I'm just calling protection. It's from verse 15. And we're going to make the point that love is always protective. It is not reckless or impulsively reactive. But how are you and I wired? We're wired reactively. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You don't give me what I want. I'm not going to give you what you want. Tit for tat. We're wired that way. We are wired for justice, right? You do something to me, you're going to pay. Paul anticipates this frailty in your heart and mind. So he writes verse 15, don't repay evil for evil. Who are you holding a grudge against right now? Are you repaying evil for evil? Who are you not forgiving right now? Are you repaying evil for evil? Who are you holding a fence against? Someone once said, the only people you should try to get even with are those who help you. <laughs> should I say it again? Did I get an amen back there, little girl? The only people you should try to get even with are those who help you. So beloved, love has a very narrow agenda. Very narrow. I only want what's best for you or move the only. I want 
only what's best for you. It's very narrow, very focused. Love wants what's best for the other person. Do you see his functional definition of love? Always seek to do good to one another and to all. There it is. That's love. I want you protected from anything that would hurt you physically, spiritually, emotionally, cognitively, financially. Love is protective. So you see how that requires you to know a standard. If love always seeks what is good, you need to know what good is. And the Bible tells us that. Love is tenacious. Always seek what is good for another. And love asks questions. What does this person need right now? What will promote this person's greatest human glory? Beloved, is that not the question the Father and the Son pose to each other at some point in eternity? What will, what will bring to pass the greatest human glory for Adam's ruined race? How do we bring into our eternal presence, our everlasting kingdom, how do we bring our enemies into that place what most promotes their welfare? Son, you must go in space and time and give up all of your welfare to ensure what is best for these broken sinners. This is what Jesus did. To give you his best, he left his glory in heaven and came and suffered, was tempted in all ways as we are. And yet at the end of his life, he had a perfect righteousness to offer you as a gift so that you'll never, 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 never be condemned by the law of God. That Jesus did because it is good for you and it's essential. And then unthinkably, Jesus takes the wrath, do your sin, in his body on the cross. That's what's best for you. Because it would be so bad to face it yourself. Jesus offers himself his best as this sufficient sacrifice for all that you need to thrive in the presence of God forever and ever. What love, beloved, what mercy, what power, what sacrifice, what a savior. Now Jesus said, that love, that will produce a culture of rabid one another. And may the world see and come in and join. Let's pray. I do thank you, Heavenly Father, that though we deserved your just punishment, you chose in unthinkable love to punish sinless Jesus in our place. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you. Now transform us as a people to live at peace with each other, patiently bearing one another's burdens with rabid, other-centered, humble servanthood. And Jesus, show yourself to be so very much alive and so full of grace and love. We pray for Trinity this in Jesus' name, amen.